As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome aboard The Athletic's Can't Wait Jets podcast, your nonstop shop for all things Jets with Tim McMaster, Zach Rosenblatt, and Marissa Dunn. Can't wait! For the second straight year, Zach has a story digging into the Jets organization, flushing out the dysfunction that helped to tear down the 2023 season. That story out on The Athletic. We're going to dive into it here on the Can't Wait podcast. Thanks for joining us. Um, Thrilled to have you here on YouTube or wherever you're joining us. It's Tim McMaster here along with Zach Rosenblatt and Marissa Dunn. Uh, we're going to get to that story and you should read it. And if you haven't joined The Athletic yet, you should for $2 a month for 12 months. Go to theathletic.com slash can't wait. Get that out of the way um, if you want to read along while we talk about the story. Um, Zach, before we get to that story, though, a few other things to talk about. One being you're not at home right now. So let's talk about that. You're in Mobile, Alabama. Um, you're at the Senior Bowl and there's Jets news there because Jeff Ulbrich is coaching one of the teams and he's a guy who wants to get a head coaching job in this league. He wasn't mentioned in your story because the defense was great all year. Um, but how is it down there in mobile? What are you up to there? Yeah, this is actually my first senior bowl I covered. I wasn't even actually planning on coming down here. Um, I was obviously working on this story, which was a reason why, but, um, when I heard Ulbrich was going to be coaching, I figured it was a, a good chance to come out here and see what he, how he looks as a head coach kind of thing. Um, I mean, it's not like a full like experience of that, but um, it's a good opportunity for him. And he has like an interesting backstory with it. Cause he, when he was a player coming out of university of Hawaii, it's not, not like a big school. He played in the senior bowl. And when we talked to him, he was like telling us all these cool stories about um, he was coached by Marty Schottenheimer. And I, I think the defensive coordinator was like Gunther Cunningham, I believe the last name was. And he told like the story about, he's like, make sure you, you got to do something that, makes you get noticed because like nobody's gonna notice like a little guy a little linebacker from from hawaii so he like lines up and sean alexander of all people is the running back on the opposite side and he like lays him out makes sure to lay him out and then everybody like notices jeff Ulbrich and he's like so he remembered that now he's like it's a full circle thing because he's coaching it and he and he talked about how his coaching career started because uh however long ago he came here without knowing anybody um trying to find a coaching job after his playing career ended and he met pete carroll and then Pete Carroll kind of started him on his journey. He brought him on as like a coaching intern, and that kind of started his journey. And yeah, so Ulbrich, he's, you know, he's re- even with the Jets fan base, he's kind of built himself up. Because you remember, first year, they did not like him. 
I think in the beginning of the second year, especially when like you had like the Quinn and Williams stuff and, and um, you know, I think people were frustrated with the defensive line rotations and, and lack of blitzing or whatever, but he's built his reputation up locally, nationally. I think he's getting up there and he had a really good perspective on the head coach thing. Like he wants it, but he also knows like it's a process in this league. Like you, you it's like you, first people start talking about your name, then you start getting interviews and then you're, you're like a guy that has a real shot at it kind of thing. And he's kind of have to, he, he's a defensive coordinator for a team that hasn't won games or made the playoffs. So it hasn't happened for him yet, but um, I do think he's had coaching material. I think a lot of people um, in that locker room do. I think Robert Sala has said he thinks he deserves to be a head coach. I don't know when that'll happen. They need, I think they need to have a good year this year. And then they, they really start. To, and if they're top 10 defense for a third straight year, I don't see any chance he does not get interviews because that, that would just be crazy to me if he didn't. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting watching him in this environment in a different kind of role. Because as he said, like, even just being a head coach, like the senior bowl, like – you realize all the, the little things that pop up that you have to deal with beyond just like coaching. Cause when you're a defense coordinator, you don't have to deal with the defense and calling plays for the defense. But when you're the head coach, you have to deal with player issues, family stuff and, and everything going on on top of like, he is a Jets coach still. And he probably has to like in his back of his mind, be evaluating these guys too. The other news today um, beyond the story is uh, Rex Hogan, um, longtime member of the front office assistant GM, uh, leaving the Jets team, letting go, him go. Um, he can go search for other opportunities. Um, obviously, bad timing, Zach. But but this is an interesting move for the Jets. They're they're making little moves here and there, and this one pops up today. Yeah. So from what I understand, it's been in the works for a couple of weeks. Um, so it's not like they just decided today. I think they were trying to come up with a way to mutually part with him because I think he is. Uh, you know, Joe Douglas and him have a close relationship. He's been a key decision maker here. Uh, they decided to move on. I think, you know, early enough or at the end of the season, I think I reported about how there was going to be some staff changes. It wasn't only necessarily coaching staff. Um, I didn't know it would be an assistant GM. That's like a pretty high up uh, role. But, you know, they moved on from Taylor Embry. I guess we haven't talked really since they made some coaching staff changes too. Uh, moved mm -hmm. on from Taylor Embry, a running backs coach. He's getting replaced by Tony Dews from the Titans, which I think is a good hire. Uh, coach Derek Henry for a while. Um and they're hiring Sean Jefferson, who was a former Jets receivers coach, but they haven't necessarily fired Zach Azani yet, which is like very weird. Like I was, I was talking to somebody about it. It just made me think of uh, Office Space. If you guys saw the movie Office Space, where the guy who just kept getting paid and was living in the basement with like the stapler, and um, and then eventually they realized that they were still paying him, so they stopped paying him. And then he like burns the building down, or not, not Zach Azani, but it just made me think of like a guy that's kind of hanging around. But anyway, so they were going to make some changes. Um, and I didn't think any of them were going to be significant. I don't think this qualifies as significant. It is notable. Uh, I don't get the impression they'll like hire somebody from outside of the building. Maybe they'll promote somebody from within. Uh, but yeah, then, you know, there's going to, when you miss the playoffs this many years in a row and the way things have happened and some of the talent evaluations they missed on last year, um, you know, I, the owner probably wants to make some changes in that way. And so Rex Hogan is a guy that I'm sure he'll land on his feet. He's a guy that's been around the league. He's worked for the bears, I believe before. Um, and he, he used, I, I've never been here, like I said, but he used to come to mobile every year. And the fact that he wasn't here this year was, did seem notable at the time. And then we found out why today. All right. I think we've, uh, we built up the drama enough here to, to jump into this story. <laughs> um, if you haven't read it, um, that's fine. We'll kind of fill you in on the information as we go. I've broken it down by like characters within the story. 
Salah, Hackett, Rogers, Wilson, basically. Um, but before we get into each of those different kind of segments of this whole thing, um, the, the lead quote here is one Jets coach actually saying it's just such an effing mess. Something has to change. That kind of the lead quote. Um, Zach, how did the story, you know, it's not just you at the top of the story. It's you and Diane Rossini. Um, just talk about the process of putting this together, because I know these stories come out and if they're negative towards the team, you get you basically get split. Right. As far as the reaction from the fan base, it's it's half yeah, the fan base understandably. kind of felt that way. And they're like, oh, this proves that what we kind of thought was right. The other half says hates you and says you're making it all up. But the fact is, between the two of you, you have 30 sources. And um, six months of yeah. reporting, correct? And six months. Yeah. yeah. It's not like yeah, you started yeah. this when the season ended. Yeah, yeah. This has right. been, you've been yeah. digging into this as it unfolded throughout the season. But so just give us kind of a, you know, I know you can't really give a look behind the curtain, but yeah. just kind of an explanation of the process. Yeah. It's kind of like last year. I think we did, we did a similar pod about um, the story I wrote about LaFleur and Zach Wilson's like relationship disintegrating. Um, you know, it's not something that comes together within a couple of weeks, a couple of days or anything like that. It's over the course of the season, I'm taking notes. I'm hearing things. I'm putting in the back of my mind. I'm following back up on things. People go out of the way to tell you things sometimes. Um, and I think it got louder and louder as the season went on, as the dysfunction got worse. And as you saw in the story, like things with Robert Sala and things with Nathaniel Hackett in particular were the loudest. Um, and, you know, at, at a certain point, like when a, a large number of people in a building you're hearing stuff either through grapevine or directly and then you follow up with people and, and all that. And then you keep asking around and keep asking around and, and you know, the, the story kind of forms and, you know, we check in with a lot of people involved in the story, including them, uh, check in with the jets. Um, and that's kind of how it all comes together. You know, Diana and I, you know, she started working with the athletic in like September. If you remember, we, it was right after Rogers got hurt, I believe, is when we had the report about um, Rogers not liking cut blocks. Um, and so Diana and I really started like, we developed a relationship, like like a friendship, I should say. Um, at that point, I didn't really know her before she joined the athletic. And I don't, we, we both started like just working with each other and following what was going on with the Jets. We would check in with each other, but hey, I heard this, Are you, what are you hearing? And then she would check with, you know, certain sources and all that stuff. And so that's kind of like, um, what the best I can give behind the scenes, I like, I, to your point, like, I know there's a lot of people that are skeptical, especially when it's something like this. Um, and people are all, you know, focused on the timing of it. Like, why'd you do it now? Like, why'd you wait until this? It's not that we waited until a certain time. We had a, everything had to be vetted. We had to run things by the notable parties in the story. We had to run it through the grapevine at the athletic and the New York times and all the people involved with the editors who did a great job editing the story. Like, the, the, my original version of the story was over 5,000 words and it got cut down to like closer to 3,000. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff that's not in there that either didn't pass the snuff in terms of like number of sources or like we didn't feel great, like hundred percent sure about certain things or we, we followed up people and they shot it down and gave us, you know, specifics about why it was like, there's a lot of that goes into these things. It's not an overnight thing. We didn't just, okay, we're going to drop this on a certain day to make them look the worst. So no, it's just the kind of the timing of it. And um, it's the off season. Um, as time has gone on, we've heard more things like I, one of the main things I think we're going to talk about, um, when we get to the hacker part of it is about what they've been telling, like other coaches that Saul has been talking to. And that was a thing that we learned pretty recently, because obviously that happened after the season. So 
as you hear more stuff, you have to get that thing vetted. And so that, it kind of kept getting pushed back. It wasn't originally going to be this late. Um, and so that's where we're at. I mean, that's, that's the best I can explain. I hope that explains, you know, kind of the behind the scenes part of it without getting too into the weeds, but um, yeah. No, I think that's great. And, and it does explain yeah. it. People are um, getting complimented in our comment section here on the podcast, um, that more of a positive outlook on you than maybe in the, uh, the Twitter sphere. Uh, people tend to tend to go the other way sometimes all right let's get into this let's start with Salah um and we'll start with the the big picture which we go back to first game Monday night football prime time um Aaron Rodgers carrying the flag out onto the field all that then four four plays in obviously injured season over um and then at that point I think from a, a fan perspective the outlook was all right, um, we were hoping to go to a Super Bowl, but can we still make the playoffs? What can we do? But from your story, the outlook, at least in some parts of the coaching staff and and this team was, or the front off, not the players, was seven wins would be great. Let's get to seven wins, which is just mind-boggling when you look at what other teams did with injuries during the same yeah. season. And we keep going back to like the Cleveland Browns, but like, the Cleveland Browns to to win 12 games to you know make it to the playoffs and play as well as they did other teams and for the Jets at week one at least in some circles to be thinking we just need seven wins to survive is crazy yeah um it's definitely a jarring thing especially when we heard it uh that that was they had to like adjust the bar and look I I get being like even realistic to a degree, but you also that defeatist mentality is is not something I think fans are gonna appreciate very much. And it's kind of like it. I don't even think it's that big of a deal if a coach feels that way um, privately. But for like the organization to decide, like, look, we just need to get through the season, get to seven wins. Rogers come back, play some young guys, get them experience. Like I, I, I don't think I think it became clear. Like even if they didn't say it to the players, which I don't think they did. Um, I, especially for that defense, how good it was. You have these guys playing at a very high level. You have Garrett Wilson, who feels like, you know, some years of his career being wasted away because there are so many issues on offense. And they had to suffer through basically an identical season last year to a lot of degrees. So I don't think that is something that necessarily went over well. Um, I blanked where I was going to go next. But, um, yeah, I just – I think that if you, if you remember – when we went into the last offseason, like the big topic was like, who are they going to get that quarterback? This front office and this coach staff knows they need to get the right quarterback because if they don't and they miss the playoffs, everybody's gone. And so what happened is Rodgers goes down and they pretty much got a mulligan, not immediately. Obviously, they didn't get the endorsement until later in the year, but I think they felt like they were going to get a mulligan. And so they decided to start planning for the next year, essentially, which, um, you know, they're probably not the first team to do something like that, but they had a very unique situation here where they lost the guy that they built their entire team around, especially the offense, the structure, the play calling all of it. They said, it's all Rogers. It's Rogers' show. We're not going to worry about the backup quarterback. We have Rogers. He's going to take us to the promised land. War plays in, he's gone. And they left scrambling and they had all season to figure it out. And it took them until that Texans game to really like figure out how the offense can look without necessarily Rogers in there. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not like papering over how the offensive line issues that obviously was a thing, but I also, and I made this point in the story, look, 13 offensive line combinations, 17 games, you're not going to win like that no matter who you are. But also, the offensive line was not looking good before all those injuries. Like in training camp, they were getting absolutely destroyed the entire camp. Um, they went into the season banking on Dwayne Brown and Makai Becton as your tackles. Like that 
these are things that they, the Jets chose to do and, and they were, they had to pay the consequences for that ultimately. So um, yeah, I, it's it, the, the defeatist attitude. It's not only Robert Sala, but he, a big part of it was, you know, him um, being essentially, and I, and this is in there too, um, being essentially like, what do you, what do you expect me to do? Like I, I lost Aaron Rodgers. Like, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, and, and oh. he did, and he researched those facts, um, yeah. you know, in the story he talked about, he looked at basically great coaches around the NFL and researched what their records were with backup quarterbacks and found that they all basically have, you know, from McVay to Belichick to, to whoever, they all have losing records when they didn't have their starting quarterback, which, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but like to, to do that research is like, you're, you're just looking for, it seems like he was looking for excuses and it seems like the season was filled with a lot of excuses. Yeah. And, that, and that's something we've it's like, we've been talking about on this podcast all season. I went on Will Parkinson's podcast pretty recently and talked about it. Um, the excuse making was like obvious to anyone who was following the jets, like every press conference. And, and like, it was, it was always something. And, whether it was on the record or things that you hear when you talk to people like this was stuff that was happening behind the scenes where it was just excuses, excuses, excuses. And it all starts with the Rogers thing. But like, again, like we're not going to, we don't need to keep using the same examples, but like the Browns, the Vikings, all these teams that went to backups and they were still competitive and in the playoff contention at the end of the season. Yeah. The Bengals. Um, So ultimately like, you know, I, I keep referencing this uh, to people I've talked to. So Shil Kapadia, Every even when he was at the athletic, he did it, but he does at the ringer still every year. He does like a eight rules for hiring new head coach. And if you just go through it, like a lot of it's like excuse making has no place. Like it's you know, if if your team's not executing, it's on the coaches, not it's not necessarily on the players, like it's your job to get them ready, like all the all the stuff, and then it's all the he's going point point point, and I'm and I'm I'm I can't help but think like all the all that stuff is describing exactly the problem the Jets have. It's like they it's the excuses, it's saying it's execution, it's not coaching, it's what what this not even just solo like Hackett, um, and there's other people that need to go to the podium. And whether you believe it or not, you need to be like, look, I'm the head coach of this team. I'm the offensive coordinator of this team. I'm the quarterback of this team. This is on me. I need to be better. I need to figure out a better way to put these guys in position to succeed. And instead, what you saw and the fans saw it, and they all got very frustrated with it, was blaming, you know, the offensive line, um, blaming the receivers, whatever, whatever it is, um, blaming the officials. Uh, acting like everything was hunky dory when it wasn't like that, that. That's kind of like the pervasive, like excuse making is, it's just not like it doesn't have a place in a winning culture. And I, I think there are many people in that building who agree with that. Um, and I wonder if there's going to be some self-reflection this off season. I, and I know I, I think there already was even before this came out, but I, I, I do just wonder like how, what the reaction is to this as they go forward. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The other part of the the Sala equation that just doesn't look great is the paranoia. I think you used I think you used that word, but um, you talked about the Texans game, and of course we go back to that week, that situation where Zach Wilson was supposed to be was not supposed to play again during the season, right? But then they they decide to go back and ask him, and and you you write this all into the story, which was previous reporting from you and Diana as well, um, basically. They told him he wasn't going to play again. And then when they went back to him, I mean, in honest, his thought process, when they've already said, we're going to trade you in the offseason, yeah. was some reluctance, like, well, then why am I going to bother going out here um, and playing when I could also get hurt, which, and by the way, he did um, the next week. But he plays great against the Texans. Um, that story leaks, and that really gets to Salah. And it's it's interesting because the public Salah we see, I feel like, that persona wouldn't worry about something like this, but behind closed doors, according to the story, he has a meeting where he's actually like asking who the leak was and like to let, you know, if you were the leak, let me know. It'll be okay. Is that, is that a fair kind of recap of that? Yeah, kind of like, yeah, it's, it's like talking to like your kid when they've, you know, they've done something wrong and it's like, look, I won't be mad. I just need you to admit that like you did this kind of thing and I won't, you won't be grounded. Or like if you have like I have three brothers like we definitely had that talk with my parents I'm sure in my life, and so I I think he's he's doing that. Um, I think part of it was in response to what Rogers said on Pat McAfee in in light of our Zach Wilson report where he said that, that doesn't have a place in winning organizations. It's all the chicken shit, um, and he said you know we need to f- stop these from happening, and so I think that kind of sent how I phrased it like sent him into a little bit of a tailspin. He felt like he had to have that meeting, and but what. What happened from that was the coaches are hearing him focus on this one thing as they're preparing for a game that week. They wound up winning that game against the Texans. The next week was when they really like fell apart against the Dolphins. But um, like he was just so focused on this thing that I think other people in the building didn't view it as as big of a deal as Robert wound up feeling it. And I think I kind of portrayed that in the story. Like the, the coaches were like, "What what is going on here? Like um, he's so focused on this on this leak. And I get like, leaks are bad. Like I a hundred percent get that. Like my, my job is like when I need, I'm reporting on this team and, and when I hear leaks, like I have to vet them to make sure they're accurate and all that stuff. But like, it's, it's not my job to like coddle the, the franchise either. So I, I get like that. They don't like the stuff getting out information, opinions, um, you know, people on a staff saying negative things about him. Like I totally get all of that or the Zach Wilson thing the way it happened and all that stuff. But um, I think the response to it, and you know, when, when you write a story like this, as you're writing it, you do want aggregation is such a thing now. Like it, anytime I write a story, it's in the back of my mind. Anytime we do this podcast, it's in the, it's in the back of my mind. Like what's going to be aggregated that I wrote in here? What's going to be aggregated that I talked about? And I was not, I, I had like a pretty good idea of the things that would, but I, the number one thing has been the the cell phone thing. Robert Sala threatening to take the phones. Like it's been aggregated everywhere. 
Um, I didn't think that would be the number one thing. Story. It goes right the yeah. NHL this season uh, with the Columbus Blue Jackets and the story of the coach asking to see players' cell phones. And he got fired before the season started. Like people love a good cell phone story. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah, just, and like the paranoia thing just adds to it. Like just the, the reaction. I think it's just very, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that, when we heard that, we heard about that meeting, like, yeah, when, cause it was a couple of days after our story and, and all that. So that was a crazy week. That feels like a, a year ago at this point, this season has been, it's not even the season anymore, but it was such a long season. Um, but yeah, so I think that that's been the biggest thing that people have taken away from it. But ultimately, like again, the whole thesis of this story is the Jets obviously would have been better at Aaron Rodgers, um, but I think him getting hurt like revealed a lot of like the issues in this organization. It's like when you when you try and cover up like some leaks, and then mm-hmm. another one pops up, and then you try and cover that one up, and then another one comes up. It's like all these things are popping up as a result of the Rogers injury, like they went all in on him and it backfired because they didn't have like the structure to, to survive without him. And so I, I think that's the biggest thing. Like Salah has a lot needs to fix. I think, you know, I think there's this misperception that I'm, I've always been negative about Robert. I, I don't think I have, I think last year we gave him a lot of credit for the way he handled all the drama that was going on and how that locker room stayed the together. The locker, together. Stayed together. Yeah. the locker room stayed together this year, by the way. Um, yep. And, and he's, and I wrote this in the story. He's earned a lot of respect for like everybody feels like they can be themselves in that organization because that's Robert Sala's message. He wants the guys to lead themselves. And I think that's all very positive and true. And last year, like if you remember in the Zach Wilson story um, with LaFleur, like I think Zach and LaFleur maybe came out not looking great in that. But I, I, I think the way I wrote it last year was painted Robert as like kind of, again, like keeping all those leaks from happening, not like, reporting leaks like leaks like the in the metaphor i used before yeah. um uh so yeah i, I just yeah they, they have a lot of things they need to look in the mirror and figure out and the just sort of like the excuse making the freaking out about things that don't matter the focusing on the media attention he's getting and and i i think he i'm not going to advise him how to be an nfl head coach because i couldn't imagine what it'd be like being that in new york but i can tell you just in life looking at social media is not healthy. <laughs> so I, I would recommend he stops doing that. And maybe that the owner also. <laughs> stops doing that. And I was going to say to end things, yeah. now, then we'll move on to hack it. Yeah. But the one little tidbit in there also, and there's more in the story. We're not going to touch on everything. So yeah. make sure you read the story, but uh, Woody sharing tweets with Salah that criticized the team. And then uh, Salah hearing from someone else on the staff that just said, Woody takes Twitter, Twitter as word as the truth, mm-hmm. which probably true yeah um yeah so here's what it's not that he takes it as i shouldn't say that that's incorrect that's yeah i don't think woody takes twitter as truth i think woody takes personally criticism on twitter yes um look here's what i'll say about that like i know everybody thinks that's funny and is latching onto it like the idea that he's looking at jets twitter um and jets twitter i'm sure is loving that too because those guys those people are maniacs i love jets twitter but there's maniacs on there um, like, I, I don't even necessarily blame Woody for looking at Twitter. Like, like he owns this team. He's passionate about it. He wants them to be good and they're losing. And the offense is not scoring again, like for years and years, it's been doing that. So he goes on Twitter, he sees, you know, he sees the first 12 tweets he looks at are all people saying, you know, why is Nathaniel Hackett still a play caller? Why, 
why isn't Garrett Wilson getting the ball more? Why aren't you throwing the ball to Brees? Like he sees all the stuff that everybody's tweeting about because it's like a lot. And and so, you know, I don't know what the conversations like. Him and Robert Sala talk a lot. I know that to be true. Um, and so, you know, he has every right to like go to Robert and be like, why aren't we doing this um, as the owner of the team? Now, it, the fact that it's via tweets from other people and reporters and stuff like that, maybe that's not the best way to approach it. But I, I, I don't honestly blame him for this as much as like you might think. Like it, it is like a funny thing to read that like this billionaire NFL team owner is looking at, you know, whether it's Connor Hughes's Twitter feed or it's, um, you know, Boy Green's aggregations or videos and stuff like that. Like he probably shouldn't be doing all that, but like I don't blame him looking at it. like this. For example, this story I published a story. I'm, tr- I'm trying to stay off Twitter because it's it's a pretty even mix of like toxic and nice and mean and angry and all that stuff. But like you put something out in the world and you want to see what people think about it. It's like if somebody released a movie, I'm sure they're just looking at all the reviews. Like it's it's human nature to do that stuff. So again, I, I don't blame Woody for that stuff, even if it kind of is funny on the surface. Yeah, that's totally fair. All right, let's move on to Hackett um, and his chunk of the the dysfunction. Um, and we go back to let's do this in in order of time. I guess we go back to to training camp. Um, and one of the quotes from one coach was when speaking of the offensive line, completely getting dominated by the D line, he said he'd never seen a unit watch less training camp practice video than the jets offense. So going all the way back, things weren't working. This O-line was pieced together, obviously, but according to this one coach, they weren't really working on it in the video room to fix it either. Yes. So I, with the Hackett stuff, like, I, th- I think the reaction that I've seen for the most part has been like, it doesn't feel like, like, I think this is what everybody kind of thought was happening yeah. with Hackett, like disorganization, um, and lack of attention to detail. Like you saw it on, on Sundays, like they got so many penalties. There's so many mistakes, guys doing the wrong things. And that ultimately falls back on Hackett. And, um, you know, he, it's not like he had a rich history of of success as offensive coordinator, as as we've discussed on here, and many other people have. His best years were in Green Bay when he wasn't calling plays as the OC. Um, he was not very successful as the Bills OC. He had one good year with the Jaguars, where they were more cared about the defense, but Bortles did have a good year that year. Then he got fired, I believe, the next year. Broncos season was an absolute disaster, obviously, especially in terms of his ability to like run the offense. He first had to like hire like a game management coordinator because they were making so many mistakes, and then. He gave up play calling like it was he got fired after 15 games in his first year, which is hard to do unless you're Urban Meyer. So um, he came here not with an amazing reputation, but he was Aaron Rodgers' buddy and they work well together and Rodgers trusts him. And they he felt like he can construct the offense with Hackett. But when Rodgers, when you remove Rodgers from that equation, then you have a little bit of a mess. And that's kind of what played out. It's what everybody maybe expected and maybe it was worse than anybody thought it would be. But um yeah, and that's kind of like leads into the thing I alluded to earlier. Like, they've talked to coaches about adding them to the offensive staff with the idea that uh, he wouldn't necessarily be the main play caller anymore, that it would be like a collaborative effort, which if you look at recent history in NFL, that doesn't usually work. Um, the Eagles did it when uh, they forced Doug Peterson to fire some of his coaches, and he was gone a year after that. Um, I'm sure there's other examples I'm not thinking of, but when you have so many cooks in the kitchen, it's it doesn't really work usually. But I think that as long as they have the main cook, the main chef, or Aaron Rodgers, I feel like they don't. The rest of it doesn't necessarily matter as much. 
Well, and if you're talking about collaboration from the story, it sounds like something that Hackett struggled with as well. Um, lacking attention to detail, but it, you're saying that he met with Keith Carter, Todd Downing throughout the week, but then the meetings with the other coaches about game plan and whatever's coming up were, were last minute thrown together type things. So to think they're going to change the setup and make it more collaborative, it doesn't sound like that's a strength. Yeah, well, and I think maybe that would be the idea of you bringing in another coach to maybe help with the organization and maybe make the that. lines of communication yeah. better. You know, I I don't think Hackett's the only one that operates like that. I think a lot of times these play callers, especially the offensive play callers, they think that they know everything that needs to be done. They not not even necessarily out of selfishness, like they've gotten to this point and they want to run their offense the way they want to run it, and and they involve the co- the rest of their coaches as they see fit. But I I don't I think like a bad communication is between the coaching staff is going to lead to bad communication on the field between the players and the coaches. Cause if not, everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing, where they're supposed to be. Like that's why you get a team that had the most pre-snap penalties in the NFL. So um, yeah, you know, they, I think it was around week 11 uh, is when they transitioned to like playing all the younger guys. Uh, and then you saw the mistakes get even worse. And so like, there's, there's something there. Like they need to figure something out in terms of the way they approach coaching and play calling offense. And I think it starts with Hackett. Uh, I don't know if that's him ceding power or control of the offense or what that looks like, but the offense, again, it, the offense was bad. Like Michael Floor has aged pretty well, if you think about it, because the offense was really bad two years ago, but it wasn't like sloppy. It wasn't a sloppy mess. It was more like the quarterback wasn't playing well and, you know, the receivers couldn't stay healthy or whatever. And the O-line was the O-line. But I think the, I don't think anybody questioned like the play designs or like, you know, I maybe they questioned some of the decisions before made, but, uh, anyway, I think the, I don't think anybody thought the offense would get worse and that it, it did in pretty much every category. So, um, obviously the fixing the offense is the number one priority. It's the offensive line, it's receiver, it's backup quarterback, it's backup running back. They have a lot of moves to make there. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be the, the story of the off season. The, I think the one other thing we can get into with Hackett, there's a lot more on Hackett in the story, but I, I don't want to give away everything, Zach, because I want, yeah. I want people to read it. Um, but this one stood out. And I think when you talk about aggregation probably gets grabbed uh, quite a bit is during training camp, often Hackett was heard saying, well, that's what Aaron wants to run basically throwing it that way. And that, that he would send a call in play in Aaron wouldn't like it. And they would basically reset the offense and do what Aaron wanted to do, which it's great. They have a strong relationship. You classified it as a frat brother vibe. I think relationship that's probably not the strongest, but it's good that a quarterback and offensive coordinator get along. Um, but at the end of the day, I, th- I think in practice, at least you should be running what the OC wants. Like it's one thing to audible during the game, right? As the quarterback, this is what I'm seeing. But like in that yeah. stance to just reset and run whatever the quarterback wants, it probably didn't set a great vibe for this offense overall. Well, so I would how I'd reframe that is he would say that's what Aaron wants. Like he would to like tell the other coaches, like, look, this is what Aaron wants, so we're gonna call this, even if they would right. fight with him. And then Aaron would be like, No, I don't want to run that. And that's kind of like, but like okay. I, again, like it's especially in camp when you want to like just have the operation working and this is a new offense, new quarterback, all that, like that's definitely not good. But when the season was gonna come around, Aaron was always gonna change stuff at the line. Like he did right. that even with the floor, the other LaFleur. Um, I think there was more of a structure there where he wasn't able to do as much like audibling at the line, but Aaron's whole thing is he wants complete control of everything. And you, it's hard to blame. Like he's, he's a great, like that's the part that shouldn't be lost in this. Like, I, I think 
even at 40, I still think, I mean, who knows what he looks like after the Achilles. But before the Achilles, I thought he was going to be very good. I still think he's an amazing thrower of the football. And he has a great brain and, and all that stuff. There's a reason why he's won four MVPs and a Super Bowl and all that. So I don't I don't blame them for giving the organization to Rodgers. I don't even blame them for letting him take over the offense, all that stuff. It just like they didn't have a backup plan is the problem. And, it, it, and some of the sloppiness in training camp, like it's hard to overlook that when you think about like what they looked like when he went down. Anything else on Hackett? I feel like that's we kind of. I think we covered pretty much everything on him, yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. So Rogers, that transitions nicely into, into Rogers. Um, said in the story, direct line of communication with Joe Douglas. How, how normal rare is that for an NFL quarterback to have that sort of communication level with the general manager? Yeah. I, so what I would say is star quarterbacks definitely have like a line of communication to the GM. I, it's not uncommon for like, I keep saying like a lot. Somebody's pointed that out. Now I can't stop hearing it. <laughs> but uh, you, it's not uncommon for a GM to go to a star quarterback, whether it's Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Tom Brady when he played Peyton Manning, to be like, "What do you think about us signing so and so?" Like that's not uncommon, and it's, and it's totally fine. What's more uncommon is Aaron Rodgers being like, "I would like to play with these." five players and the Jets pursuing them sight unseen almost like they paid Alan Lazard way too much money. I think everybody knows that. And they probably knew it in the moment, frankly, Dalvin cook paid him too much money, brought in Billy Turner as your swing tackle. That didn't work out. Tim Boyle as a, one of the back quarterbacks that didn't work out. Um, they wanted to sign Odell Beckham. He got paid $15 million to get like 500 receiving yards and barely play in the playoffs. Um, David Bakhtiari, like he was injured most of the year, like, there's a reason why the players aren't the general managers. I, I don't think there's an issue. Like what somebody said to us uh, from another team was the Packers didn't give them enough say. The Jets gave them too much. Like you need to be in the middle somewhere. And I, I think they learned their lesson this last offseason. We'll find out this offseason. I do think they've learned their lesson. Um, like I don't think they're going to go and sign David Bakhtiari and uh AJ Dillon and like all those things. Maybe they sign one of them or something like that. I don't think I was gonna say they do need they yeah. do need a yeah. tackle or two. They do, but he's he's yeah, unless he's gonna come as your swing tackle or he comes very cheaply, I don't think that would be yeah. a great move because he's very hurt. But yeah, so he he had a lot more say. He had a lot of say in the offense, he had a lot of say in a lot of things they did. And again, I do not blame them for going all in because this is the Jets. They've had bad quarterback play forever, and this is the best quarterback talent-wise, that's probably ever walked in their building. <laughs> um, and so they were fawning over him and, and all that stuff. And, and, uh, but they needed a, they need to throttle it back a little bit now. And, you know, he could be the leader of the team. He can be almost the assistant head coach if he has to be. Uh, but they should not be relying on him for their decisions. Cause I've talked about this with some people, uh, in mobile, mobile, how do you say it? Uh, I think Joe Douglas, 
and a lot of fans are down on him, and for good reason. He's had some really big mess-ups, especially on the O-line. I think he got away from his principles this offseason. I think usually, even if you don't like how the moves worked out or things like that, you could go back and look at the first, you know, if you look at 2021, 2022, uh, not as much 2023, like most of his moves that he did, like logically made sense, even if they didn't work out. This offseason, he kind of threw logic out the window a little bit and went away from the principles of building the O-line uh, and not overspending on positions that aren't important positions. And he overspent on a receiver. Uh, not that that's not important, but he overspent on a receiver that is at best probably a third receiver when he's at his best anyway. Overpaid the running back, all that stuff. Like This is not stuff that the Joe Douglas that worked for the Eagles, worked for the Ravens, would have done. And so it's – uh. I mean, he, he knows he's on the hot seat. Robert Sala knows he's on the hot seat. But this is a make-or-break offseason for Joe Douglas. He needs to hit on every single thing. You know, in the 2022 offseason, he did hit on everything. That's probably why everybody still has their jobs, because that 2022 draft class. By the way, Jermaine Johnson added to the Pro Bowl. So now you have mm-hmm. two Pro Bowlers already from that class, a two-time All-Pro in Sauce Gardner, a future Pro Bowler in, in Garrett Wilson and Brees Hall. Just like an un, unreal draft. Like, you know, those don't come around, like, ever. Like, those are four stars. <laughs> Um, and so that saved him in a lot of ways. He like has the core of like great talent, which attracted Rogers here in the first place. So, um, he's had a lot of good and a lot of bad, uh, and a lot of like, okay, I get it. And he, if he has another bad off season, everybody's gone. So the pressure is on him and he knows it. And the quote from one, which I probably should have led with the quote from one league official in the story was Rogers, isn't the assistant GM Douglas is the assistant GM. Um, and obviously when other officials in the league get talking, they like to have some fun, but that's a, you know, a telling quote that that's how someone kind of viewed the situation. Um, all right. One of the, some other stuff about Rogers during the season and certainly during training camp, but I think, I think the, it was kind of left out there throughout the season that there was this great relationship between Rogers and Wilson um, big brother type thing and, yeah. and that Wilson really was able to learn a lot from him. And it sounds like that was the case early on through training camp, but then things changed once the injury happened to the point where Wilson really didn't have much contact with Rogers, which I don't think any of us thought was going on. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, that's not, it's like a complicated thing. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, you know, Obviously, the plan was for Zach to sit for the, like we've talked about that so many times now. The plan was for him to sit behind Aaron for the year. Aaron gets hurt. He flies out to Malibu. All of a sudden, he's not really readily available. Maybe Zach wasn't FaceTiming him. I know that's like the, his whole thing. You have to FaceTime me. Um, but yeah, you know, what Zach Wilson told people in the building, you know, coaches and teammates is that, you know, this is later in the season when I heard this. Um, it's not after the season. It was during the season when I heard this. Um, he told people that. Like I, I was under the impression I was going to have a direct line to him and I, I, that was not the case. And he felt like kind of left out on an Island by him, I think. So, um, I, I don't, I think Aaron still had some love for Zach, uh, by the end of the year. And I don't don't think, I don't even think necessarily that Zach doesn't like Aaron anymore. I just think their relationship was not what it started at. I would say like they, like, kind of like when, you know, you have a close friend in college and then you you graduate from college and everybody moves away and it's harder to keep in touch with them. Maybe that's what happened here. Like Rogers moved to Malibu. Uh, (laughs) He did come back to the building and I don't know if that helped their relationship or not. I I don't get the impression it necessarily did like fully. Uh, I think Zach was pretty tapped out by the point that um, Rogers came back. 
but yeah, that's why when Rogers, when Robert Sala had Rogers call Zach to try and convince him to play when he was reluctant to, uh, Zach still wasn't like going to do it until the athletic report came out. So yeah, it's an unfortunate product of what happened. Cause I think they really wanted Zach to learn from Aaron. And now we're going to head towards an off season where Zach's probably going to get traded. Uh, don't know what they'll get for him. Probably a day three pick. I do think there's going to be interest. Maybe not like a lot of interest for a number two overall pick, but I, I think that Texans game, he showed enough of a flash where a team is going to buy into the talent because there is talent there. He has a lot to work on in terms of processing and all that good stuff, but I, there's going to be a team that trades for him. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know when it's going to be, but I think he's going to get traded. And that spins things to Wilson, which at this, I think we've actually covered a lot of the Wilson stuff. A lot of it was the the stuff with Rogers um, and the fact, you know, that he, said he was he was likely to decline the offer to return to the lineup because of the conversation he had already had with Salah, right, about the fact that he would be yep. traded and also the Jets' offensive line. Um, the the three previous people we talked about mostly here, Salah, Hackett, and Rodgers, there's definitely negativity in the story. I don't think there's that for Zach. I mean, it's Zach almost comes out of this as like just a, an unfortunate situation, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, the our Zach Wilson report was pretty divisive. Um, and there was some stuff we weren't able to report at the time, um, not getting too into the weeds. And we were able to report more of it this time. And so we got the full breadth of what happened. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't think this vindicates him by any stretch. I mean, he still was refusing to play as an NFL player, uh, which I think is notable. And it's going to be something that he's going to get asked about by other teams or whatever, if they're, if they have the ability to talk to him before he gets traded to them or when he gets traded to them. But ultimately, yeah, like this, we, everybody knew going into last season, going into this season, actually like after last season that like Zach's career was winding down. I mean, he got benched multiple times last year and they publicly pursued a bunch of guys. Like, so I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm very curious to see how Zach's career plays out. If he ever like has a tell all with, somebody in an interview i don't think he will i don't think he's that type maybe his family will but um <laughs> uh maybe down the line he'll write a book or something and i'll be very fascinated by that but um yeah i mean i i have nothing against zach wilson i know that's a perception when a negative story gets written or whatever but i uh, i do not have anything against him i i don't think he's a bad person by any stretch i think he's young and and uh got thrown into a situation that he didn't have a great you know it wasn't a great environment. Um, and I don't know if this market was great for him ultimately, but I, I, I think he has an NFL career and he might have a long NFL career. Maybe it's as a backup, but I, I don't think he's done playing football. I mean, I think a year ago we thought of Zach as, you know, obviously drowning as far as the playing goes, but an immature yeah. guy maybe that, that did some dumb things. I think that narrative kind of changed this season. I think he matured a lot. At least that's what was yeah. put out. You know, that's how he came across. So you know, credit to him for that. He handled all of this, I think, as well as you could. Um, I don't I don't put anything negative on him for not wanting to play with that report. And then obviously, once that report comes out, if you're the player, you're probably going to play. Right. Because because you don't want that kind of out in the world. So it, to me, it it all makes sense. And, yeah, I, I always root for guys that have tough runs with one team to have success somewhere else. And I think think strangely i think jets fans think that way too i think they still hope sam darnold like finds i was about to say sam darnold in the super bowl i mean come on yeah, <laughs> yeah in the as, super bowl. As, yes. as connor always tweets mike mccagnon knew yeah 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Check out the story. Um, it's really well done. Whether you don't like Zach anymore because he spoke the truth about what was going on in this organization, or you respect him more for getting it out there and proving to us all that everything we thought was true. Either way, read the story because um, it's great. Zach, good job on it. And, and Diane, obviously, as well. Yeah, yeah, we wanted to get Diane in here. She's obviously doing a million things at once all the time. I don't even know how she does it, but um, yeah, we we worked on this for a while, and you know, I know it's controversial, but um, I appreciate everybody reading and giving feedback. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, I don't know when we're gonna do another pod hopefully soon, and we'll have some like off season stuff to cover. But yeah, we wanted to come on and just like talk about this story because it's obviously a big talking point today. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Can't Wait Podcast. For Marissa Dunn and Zach Rosebud, I'm Tim McMaster. Thanks for tuning in.